Hey guys, and welcome to today's episode of Give It The Beans. Now you might be wondering why there is a potato-looking man uh, to my left-hand side. Um, it is the one and only Callum from the Muscle Mentors. How are we doing, buddy? We're all right, mate. How are you? I'm very, very well. Uh, I had the pleasure of having uh, Luke and James on in the past, I would say, couple of months. Um, they both said that their episodes will be far better than yours. Um, so you've got a lot to live up to. A lot of expectation. <laughs> so it's been a, you know, it's been a long time since you've been on the podcast itself and what I think would be awesome for you to do is just give the give listeners a bit of an insight to sort of what's been going on with your own personal journey what's been going on the muscle mentors and whatnot um because if they haven't listened to those other episodes I know they will do after listening to this yeah 100 percent um well I think was a, was the last time that we uh the last time we recorded were we in lockdown or was it before oh that's a very good question um I'm a lot, sure a lot has changed we spoke about my prep on it so it might have been it might have been after i think so yeah the, i mean the, the, the common theme is that i guess that whenever we're in lockdown you come on a podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> finding time um now look everything's been fine this side dude um i i think the last time we would have been talking i would have been in the midst of that of that push-up and now I've been, um, this will be the seventh, the seventh week of me pulling down from where I peaked in that, um, in that improvement phase. So um, this is seven weeks into a cruise and seven weeks into uh, some, some, somewhat of a kind of a mini cup. Um, go on. This year was supposed to be a year where you're going to step on stage again, but um, I think everyone that w- watches this will probably follow you on Instagram and know that you're, you pushed it back another year. Um, so for the listeners that are dying to know why, I'm sure we all will just will know that you just want to fucking make improvements in this whole situation. But yeah. give, give listeners just an insight how your mindset changed. Um, it wasn't so much like you. There was definitely an influence over COVID and the fact that it's going to be a busy year if these if these shows do go ahead from a coaching perspective. And there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of really important preps this year that I want to nail um with clients but also just a reality that um i haven't spent enough time i haven't spent enough time at this weight holding this level of tissue for me to feel like it's gonna like it's gonna stay on in the process of getting all the way down um and i think i need another another year of you know where post prep that was a 200 pound to 300 pound push now it's going to be a, a 280 pound to whatever push in another year's time. Um, and I think that, that, that in a year's time, that will be a, that'll be a position where it's like, right, we can, we can, you know, we can move into class one now and actually um, hold our own at the height I am and at the height you are, you know, how long it takes for, for, you know, pe- people will see, oh, fuck, you know, he's like, he's 280 pound or he's 300 pound. But when you're six foot four, 300 pound can can not even look like you, you have any muscle yeah. um and that's that obviously that that's me speaking as a bodybuilder it's you know i'm sure if somebody walked down the road and saw me they'd be like oh that guy's uh, that guy's a big guy but when we're looking at the competitive rounds it takes it takes a long time to fill out a frame like that yeah 100 percent. and the funny thing is you're, you are still pretty big in regards to some bodybuilders in the fitness industry uh, i know that you coach the most the most injured man in, in scotland right now ali birds um, we were chatting about um, one of the videos or the one of the photos that you posted, and I think you were like two seven, two seven eight, two seven six upon weight. Yeah. And I was like, Ali, 
I'm two seven six if I make us like, and I don't fucking look like that. <laughs> so even even though you know we're talking about weight, it, just in general, I think that you've made a huge, like a massive gain of tissue in the like from when you competed to now, and and are a huge sort of inspiration to a lot of bodybuilders and you know aspiring coaches across the UK. And pleasure to have you back on board. And um, I will if I don't get into the question list, we'll be here for two hours. So hard, mate. <laughs> I think that this this episode sort of links really really well with um, last week's one um, with Ty Petrie coach. He was speaking about execution and kind of programming for Terence. I did one about designing a leg day, but I thought chat to the, the man with a plan about an off season because it's not really an episode I've I've ever kind of done before. I know that perhaps your thought process has changed over the years on sort of off season, but if you were to take I, okay, right, let's just start with uh, someone that's just competed. If if you say, if you're kind of thinking in your head right, I know they want to compete again one day, maybe perhaps in the next sort of one to two years. Just talk us through your initial thought process, like from from the, the minute they sort of step off stage, when it comes to like right, we're going to bring up X, Y, and Z. Where does where does Calm's brain start? I think if it's um, you know, if if the goal is is a lot of muscle, is a lot of new muscle, whether that's somebody advanced or somebody who's who's kind of quote unquote a beginner. Every decision for the first three, four, five, six months of that off season is is gonna is gonna revolve around the ability to sustain progress. Um, and something that I've done over that what was like 14, 15 months of of pushing my body weight up is, you know, there's a conscious decision to try and have longevity in terms of me making progress in a sustainable manner without either health kicking in or fatigue, you know, being mismanaged or injury or whatever it might be, you know, every, every decision is based on the fact that the longer our runway potential for progress, the more progress we're going to make. So that, that particularly obviously applies to what we're, what we're looking at when, when, when we uh, kind of refer to the anabolic side of that process as well. And as you know, and something that we've done with you as well, Vaughn is, you know, having that, um model of more gradual escalation through a through a phase and the same thing is has kind of been applied to what i've done with training as well it's it started out as as what well when for a large part of last year i was using um the the fortitude setup which was in, in essence uh a lot of tissues covered in the same in, in one session but the volume was extremely low most of those sessions were one work set and over the last probably six or seven months I've moved into more more so back to kind of the push pull orientation but with quite a big focus on um on my delts and my arms which have come up a lot like my arms have have really improved over the last kind of several months but it's it's um it's been a gradual process of slowly increasing the amount of work that I've done in the gym yeah and do you think that I mean perhaps sort of post like post show there's that big sort of I want to fucking eat more. I feel great, and I'm just going to do X, Y, and Z and fucking tra- bury myself in the ground. Have you perhaps seen a lot of competitors in that sense of athletes? Sort of like you, you talk, you just spoke about extending your progress for 13 or 14 months. Have you seen people sort of cap their progress within three or four months instead? Yeah, like it, you you see it commonly, like people that are uh, people that are too aggressive from the offset, and that can come in any manner. That can come from the standpoint of you know, not taking time post-show to recover and just going balls to the wall with your training and just burning out. 
and just being in a constant state of mismanaging recovery and fatigue that could be you know extending the 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 cycle that you were pushing at the end of prep and leaving that in for 8 10 12 16 weeks when blood work is already compromised you know that could be pushing food too aggressively um you know that the first the first two or three months post show we were we were traveling so i was training probably three or four times a week on average and i wasn't even tracking my food i was just eating intuitively i wasn't i wasn't like weighing anything or anything like that i was just eating intuitively and um i held condition for probably the first 40 45 pounds of of that rebound just by being a little bit patient yeah i had a couple of a couple of mad days post show but apart from that it was it was a more of a controlled process um but yeah you 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 see that any any process post show which is approached with aggression and is you know the the protocol that's being used is too severe or is just looking for very quick change post show it's always going to come and bite back um, and it's not going to be sustainable. And realistically, in the gaining phase, your main priority is, right, how long can I realistically add muscle? Even if that is at a slower rate, I'd rather be in a position where I add muscle consistently while staying in control of all those markers for 12, 16, 18 months, as opposed to being the guy or the girl who pushes for four months and then just reaches a bottleneck that they can't overcome because they've exhausted all those tools already. Yeah, and when I think back to... I rebounded from the show. We went pretty aggressive with with drugs, with food. And after like four months, I well, maybe it wasn't quite as much as I moved 12, 14 weeks. I was like, Cal, I can't eat anymore. <laughs> Just, you, you, you reach a point where there's, there's no room to push. Yeah. Um, so so kind of when you when you talk about it logically like that, going at a little bit more of a slower rate seems like the the one that, that would be. But then again, I still know like probably in the back of my mind that the minute I finish a show, or, or like a photo shoot or whatever, I'm always going to be like, fuck it, let's add tissue quick. Yeah, that, that's that's the uh, that's the mindset that like is a, it's a really powerful tool to harness, yeah. but it's just then like harnessing it in a way that you know is going to be conducive to maximal progress. Whereas you don't want the athlete who's like gung ho about everything to to allow their high level of motivation to influence your decision making. If that makes sense. Yeah, one one hundred percent. So. I guess what, what you just spoke about for your own journey was probably exactly what the same thing that you're going to do with, with athletes that come on stage. So let's say, for example, you have a bikini girl that came off stage and instantly you just know that she needs a bit more tissue in her glutes, in her delts or in her medial delts or whatever. So like usually I think that people will often bulk for, say, bulk for, say, 16, 20 weeks but when I think about the things that we've done and the clients you work with, you often push them up for a lot longer than that. And it obviously stems from this slow and steady progressive model. But if you were thinking from a programming perspective, if someone's just stepped off stage based on their feedback, would you radically change perhaps what they were doing on prep? Or maybe perhaps you could tell some of the listeners, does, does it then a case of allowing them to sort of train how they want for a couple of weeks and then setting something in stone new volume etc etc or or where do you start what's your thought process for that um something i like to do is is uh especially from a training standpoint you know i'll give them guidelines on what i want them and don't want them to do post show but i do allow for a little bit of leniency considering the fact that they've just done months of, of of executing everything to the letter i think the mind does need a little bit of a break when it comes to the rigidity of a plan um but as soon as they are 
you know, psychologically ready to execute again, then whatever was the feedback in the, in the previous prep and whatever we felt the look, you know, um, we felt the look resemble in terms of strengths and weaknesses, programming is going to be shifted towards what wasn't potentially as, as, as competitive as it could have been within that look. And the areas that we felt as though were strengths will obviously take a backseat in regards to, in regards to programming, like a perfect example was airing after that, after that pro, um, after that pro card win. And we knew her lower body, her quads specifically were obviously a massive strength within her physique, but her upper body was, was lagging significantly relative to her lower body. And also her glutes were lagging relative, uh, relatively um, consistently um, towards uh, her quads as well. So, you know, I think in her programming post-show, she trained quads once every two weeks um, and they still grew, but it's just the fact that the the workload did not need to be there when we look at her physique as a whole and how she looked on stage relative to these pro girls that she would be competing again in in kind of 18 months, um, which she will be competing in this year. Those improvements have been made by prioritizing essentially the areas that we needed to bring up. So programming needs to, to reflect around, you know, a review of that physique, what was competitive, what wasn't, and then just basically formulate your decisions around that. Yeah, I, I liked that whole sort of giving them a little bit of leeway because I remember way well, when I started rebranding, it was literally the first lockdown. And yeah. I was like, I've got a place to train. And you just messaged me and you said, you just said, do more arms. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll do it. But then my mentality was the whole, um, and we did strip it back, but I went from like doing a hack squat to super setting preacher curls to then like, yeah, yeah. you know, just because I was like, you might as well because you've got all this energy. But I think that you live and you learn. And I guess that if I was to talk about volume, you actually, across the board, pulled mine down mm. when you started to kind of handle programming. And then it allowed me to get strongest I'd ever been and not feel like a fucking sack of ties up at almost 130 kilos. Yeah. Um, which, you know, a few years ago, I would have said, no, I should, I should be doing more. I should be doing more. But again, what you've been able to do just sort of reaffirmed in my mind the whole actual low volume approach well it works if you train hard enough and yeah i'd like to think that i do I suppose um but but yeah so one thing i wanted to to definitely ask you about because some some of the, um, the listeners were asking me about that and i'll use it with my clients is that when when we both sort of prepped um and then in my off season we ran like a i say a dose escalation model with uh, anabolics with a stack design and that was the first time really i had ever thought of, of doing that maybe i'd done it sort of the previous off season but i didn't I'd, I'd never done the whole like just add 50 milligrams here or, or whatever there so for in, in all like speaking of the hypothetical like for the listeners out there like could you just give them an idea of like the thought process behind that how it helps how it works um that'd be great so you know you, you can view this very similar to to training and to uh, and to the diet in terms of energy balance and you know straight take a scenario and use this as a comparison post show you're eating you know uh 2800 calories or whatever 2800 calories and we know the end tolerance for your off season in 12 months time is going to be five and a half thousand calories you know what you wouldn't do would you wouldn't go 2800 calories and then you wouldn't the next week adjust them to five and a half thousand yeah because in a gaining phase in an improvement phase i'm gonna have a ballpark figure 
of what I want that total milligrams per week to be by the end of the phase that I feel as though is going to be required for them to make the progress they need to make. And that might change through the process based on how they respond, but we're going to have an idea. Now, if we've got, say, 12 months or 18 months, you know, immediately post-show, we're going to drop into, for most people, we're going to drop into a cruise and we're going to try and get the most from the least. And I haven't always done that with people, but there'll be lessons learned within every single example of that. But realistically, health is in a, in, in a compromised position post-prep. We're going to drop into a physiological range and have a bit of a, a clearance phase in regards to improving blood work and also the fact that realistically, physiology is going to be really responsive regardless of anabolics being low, even in a physiological range of hormone use post-show because we're going to be able to capitalize on food and food and recovery and, and, and less fatigue. Now, when you look at this dose escalation, it's the same as why you wouldn't max out off-season calories in a couple of weeks. When we're looking at escalating anabolics, we know that every increment we make is pushing us a little bit further to making the progress we need to make or is sustaining the progress that we need to make without reaching these bottlenecks. And that's not only in terms of training progression and the ability to drive more tissue on and drive protein accretion from increasing and escalating these anabolics, but it's also from the standpoint of maximizing and sustaining your health through that process. So, you know, at the end of an off season, the end of this push, I finished on 350 milligrams of test, a thousand milligrams of Primo and hundred milligrams of trend a week. But I started on 300 milligrams of test and hundred milligrams of Primo. So put that into perspective, that's been nearly, well, nearly 16 months of, of progression, but we've slowly escalated over to that end use. Now, I've had consults where people have entered off-season phases and started week one of their off-season at the end doses that they should have, that they finished on. So they haven't, they haven't escalated that at all. They've just started at a gram and a half and they finished in 20 weeks in a gram and a half. But we've got to appreciate the fact that if you've come from a physiological range, or even if you're not in a physiological range, if you're taking... 250 milligrams of test a week. If I take your test to 300 milligrams and increase by 50 milligrams, there is going to be a, a response relative to that dose. And there's going to be a novel response relative to that dose. And every time we increment that, that total milligram per week, we're going to get a response. So every time we feel as though we need to creep a little bit more in, just like we'd add calories to the diet to reach, to overcome these bottlenecks, we're approaching it in the same manner when it comes to anabolics. And every time you repeat that, yes, the more lean tissue you hold and the higher you're starting in terms of the requirements from an anabolics perspective. So for, say, for example, in this next push for me, I'm going to start on more than I did last time, but it's still going to be the same principle. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. I think that I really noticed, like in regards to the feedback, both on prep and then when we were in the off scene, um, I remember sending you an email saying, hey man, like strength's taking a little bit of a, like everything's feeling heavy this week. I think we need to have a little bump up for next week to then get that. We had a little bump up next week. All numbers are absolutely fine. And I guess that sort of, again, reaffirmed in my mind, the world. I said, well, we just put it up by 50 or say 100. And pretty much straight away within a 7K, call 10, 12-day period, see a, a, an increase in strength. Now, you could call that maybe perhaps that was more sort of mental because you're thinking you're on more gear or whatnot, but... Um, I noticed that same thing in prep and what it allowed me to do, the whole prep was just get stronger. Yeah. Which, which was class. And I think that going into an off season where you're trying to hit, like before this year, uh, before, like after our last show, I had never been above 120 kilos. Mm. Uh, never, ever. And then now 
I feel relatively okay walking about at like 129. Yeah. Because of those sort of simple methodologies. And as you said, putting it putting into practice has been has been class. And it, I, I just look at it like you always say, it's just another tool in the toolbox. Mm. You know, and if, if perhaps if you've pushed food as much as you can, someone can't eat a bit more, that's at a reasonable range, then that's an, that's an, obviously an option you could push, not to extend necessarily the game phase, but perhaps just to tweak, to eke out a little more strength, right? Yeah. Yeah, so um, fantastic. Thank you for um, explaining that because I was getting a lot of people, not a lot, not a lot of questions, but I'll, I'll use a similar sort of model with clients as well, and they all come back and say, oh, well, why do we do that? And I'm always like, well, do it, and then you'll, you'll see. But if we kind of keep on the, the sort of theme of an off-season, um, let's say, for example, you've you've taken an athlete off stage, um, you're now sort of, say, four months in to a, to a gaining phase. When it comes to the response that you've seen from that individual, do you think that perhaps a body part has it's responded, but not kind of quite in the way you would want? For example, let's say, let's say the glutes, right, as, a, as an example. Would you would your initial thought process to be simply hammer home execution? Would it be change the split? Would it be change the exercises? Would it be perhaps push volume, pull it back? What would you start with? The first thing we've got to do before we do anything else is how they're approaching those sets and execution because, you know, you can make the argument that, right, the split needs to change or they need more workload, they need to add more volume, they need to increase frequency. But if the execution is poor, none of those things will work because you can't just throw the kitchen sink at it and expect it to work when it didn't work before. So the biggest thing for us is in order for us to earn the right to add more volume or increase frequency or, you know, increase intensity, whatever that might be, we need to first put them in a position where they actually can have the capacity to generate tension and hold that tension through those sets and just maximize their ability to execute those movements. Now, exercise selection is going to be a big thing as well. And obviously picking movement patterns that are going to, um, both complement them as an individual, but also make sense within the programming as a whole in terms of what challenges you're selecting. But, um, you know, you can use as much volume as you want, but if you're not, if you're not standardizing and maximizing the ability to execute those movements, it's, uh, it, you know, it's making the difference because the stimulus is still poor. Yeah. And that was something that Joe hammered home in a couple of podcasts ago was just that he continued to go on about execution. Because I was asking him about uh, Terence's off-season and if he had a sticking point, what he would do. And he just came back, he always, always came back to execution. So it's great to see yourself, obviously he's in, the, he's in America, you're in the UK, like hammering home that, that same point. Do you think that if there was a, a, common, a common fault, perhaps in someone's off-season, would it be a case of, they, they think something's not working, so they then just chop and change the program to something else, when in reality, they should have just fucking videoed their set, sent you it, or, you know, got someone to review it, and, and maybe perhaps I would have sorted it. Yeah, like, it's, uh, like, regardless of how programs packaged across the week or across the rotation, you know, it, it's ultimately your ability to apply what's on paper that's going to make the difference. It's not necessarily what's on paper. Like, you can you can execute even if it's relatively poor programming if execution is bang on they're still going to get a good training response whereas if it's if it's poor programming and their execution is poor nothing's going to happen they're going, they're going to be spinning their wheels so um before kind of 
stopping and starting and cutting and editing and changing stuff out and just swapping everything. We've got to review first what's actually going wrong with the current stimulus. And more times often than not, what, what will have happened is a program will have started in some capacity that was effective. And then over time, that individual's basically changed how they're executing those movements to be able to force overload. And you see this all the time. Like that could be manipulations in, in tempo. That could be the use of inertia. That could be, um, you know, as simple as uh, they're doing a lying hamstring curl and, and they no longer have the ability to brace at the hip. And now they're just swinging the, the, swinging the, the weight up. It could be, uh, you know, them on a seated leg curl and they're trying to extend the hip as they're pulling that weight back. Like what the program was in week one and how it was stimulating those tissues in week one is not the same as it was in week eight. And realistically, that's got to stay standardized the entire time, regardless of whether you've got the full stack on the machine or whether you've got half the stack on the machine. Yeah, and and I guess the common the common fault is that when we're trying to follow progressive overload, at times we can get a little bit sort of greedy and trying to put another twenty kilo plate on. Would you? I mean, could you tell the listeners? I mean, how much do you need to remind yourself of that on a daily basis or weekly basis? Or it's are you, are you, it used to be a lot worse. <laughs> it used to be a lot worse. Um, I think uh, one of the biggest things, dude, and it, it sounds so silly, but one of the biggest things that gets in people's heads is I think a lot of coaches have this and a lot of bodybuilders that are uh, spending a lot of time on social media. It's the social recognition that you get from posting ridiculous stuff yeah. and they'll see JP do it and they'll see, you know, whoever online do it and they'll, they'll be like, Oh, you know, this, this is cool. I want to do that. And they'll replicate the same stuff in their own training. But once you start chasing those numbers and, and that type of set in your head, you're just going to have that egotistical voice in the back of your head saying, no, don't add two and a half kilos, add another 20 plate either side. And if we, if we make those decisions over and over again, you just, you, you, you're basically thieving progress from yourself because you know that it will be impossible to standardize how you're doing the exercise by progressing it that quickly. Like we've had, um, we've had a, a banded rack deadlift in our, uh, in our programming prior to Boris not letting me go to the gym. And, um, like I probably have added, I was probably on the same load for four or five weeks, just adding, adding, adding reps to that set. And it's just one single set. So it would literally start at five reps on the first time we did it, move that all the way up to a 10. And then it'll be like, right, a biscuit either side, do it again. And I'll just be micro adjusting that because the level of fatigue relative to stimulus that I'm getting from that exercise, like I can't jump increments like that. It's impossible. And if I did, my execution would just be, would be, would be completely different to when I did it the first week. Yeah. Um, so it's it's uh, it's just being patient. The ability to be patient is a massive thing. And uh, we've just got to appreciate the fact that you don't need to make these huge, huge jumps in progression to just string together productive week after productive week. Yeah, it's kind of buying in the process that over time, a biscuit will end up, you know, it'll end up becoming a wagon wheel. That's what I always, I always call it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah enough of them you're going to eventually it's going to be a 20 kilo plate and yeah. i actually just before um nicholas sturgeon shut the gyms up here and uh, not boris but uh, i i bought um the fractional plates from yeah. local and um, just because i remember emailing you saying cow rdls just feel fucking heavy but micro loading it and adding actually one kilo at a time and um, it was easy enough to keep form standardized but i think the vaughn of a couple of years ago would have just been like fuck it <laughs> and, and would have not let that happen so 
So yeah, I, I would I would have as well, mate. Back back in the uh the M10 days when we were doing those safety bar squats, that would have been uh that would have been it's either a plate or you don't add any more weight. <laughs> I still remember doing uh, the hack squat. I think we banded it from the bottom. Yeah. Uh, you 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 were gonna be doing the full like full stack. The many twenty plates you get on your side, and uh you were just like, Oh, you can do it as well. I was like Fucking right. I've travelled six hours here. <laughs> I, yeah. I remember doing the first one and it felt like I was pressing a fucking I was like I was an elephant on my back. Um, I'm sure you bullied me into doing five <laughs> at least. Mm. Uh, but you're hundred percent right. I think that the more you do this, the more you realize that you have to be patient. And that I think being patient actually pays off in time. I just I wish for me, I wish I'd had that patience. A few years ago, yeah. but at the same time, I actually wish I would train my arms a few years ago as well. Yeah. Look as shit as they do now <laughs> compared to my quads. Um, when you were saying there, when we take Erin, you've got thick quads, I'm sitting there going, This sounds exactly exactly like me. Um, but anyway, going off on a bit of a tangent here. Um, one thing that you've seen from myself, or I've experienced, I've never experienced it um, until sort of last year. Um, you probably see it from athletes all the time, is an inability to get more food in. Yeah. And I understand this can come from, um, well, for me, it was a lot of stress, but for, for some people, it might perhaps be that you're just seeing quite high fasted blood glucose levels. Um, maybe perhaps obviously the pancreas isn't producing enough insulin to, to deal with the quantity of food that's going in. So before I tell the listeners kind of the strategy that we use, I'd like to, to give you the opportunity to just say, right, what, when, when a client comes to you that's saying, you know what, like in your head, you're looking at them going, fucking hell, you've got, we could easily add another 20 pounds and they're just kind of more food in. Where, where do you go with that? You can't, um, you can't expect to hammer home that kind of anabolic. You can't press the anabolic, anabolic button forever and expect to see the same response. And there's always going to be both positive adaptations and also negative adaptations as well and we've got to appreciate the fact that like our physiology is not designed to consume that amount of food on that level of frequency and drive body weight up that quickly as well so there's always going to be these little adaptive things that happen metabolically whether that's hunger signaling whether that's you know stress accumulating and the gi starting to give us grief um we can't always progress in linear fashion forever and there'll be times where and this is kind of the, the skilled part of coaching where you need to basically identify where that top end threshold is for an athlete and before they reach it, pull them down. Yeah. And that will be a tolerance of there might be three or four weeks or five or six weeks where you're getting a client check in and that hunger level uh, marker is going from a four to a three to a two to a one. And then they're starting to complain that they can't finish meals. And then they're starting to complain that they feel nauseous. The longer you leave that, the worse that is going to be. And the longer you leave that, the longer it's going to take for actually fixing that issue in the first place. Fasted blood glucose is going to be up in the air. HbA1c is going to skyrocket. Their ability to partition food is going to compromise. GI function is going to compromise. You just can't eat. And when you can't eat, you can't progress. So there, there, there comes a time where you just need to reset. And it's just like we've done with, with you now. And I did the same thing with uh, Ali a few weeks ago. Yeah, another thing that's broken is his, his uh, appetite's broken. First, it was his back, then it was his shoulder, then it was his knee. That's one more thing that's broken. But um, yeah, just resetting. And that that could be pulling down to maintenance or what you think is maintenance. That could just be pulling food down significantly and 
to a, a ballpark range that you feel is appropriate. And the big thing there is pulling total food volume down. So there's less food being pushed through the GI, lowering protein a little bit to just reduce the stress in the GI in, in general, and just giving them an opportunity to regain appetite. And then when you've regained that ability to respond and to, to have consistent hunger signalings and to be able to get food down and to be able to, you know, maintain a lower stress state, then it's essentially like a little bit of a rebound pushing back up. Yeah. And what I found quite, not quite funny, it's quite interesting was that post-show, we ended up pushing my food. I think we ended like 850 car, 1400 far, something like that. And it was at that point, my appetite was like, no, food was done. And then this time around, last, like the tail end of December, I was only at maybe 650 car, well, 700 if you include the, the psychodexin. And, and to see the difference was was huge. But yeah. one thing, obviously, I, I didn't take into consideration at the time was it was stressful trying to, like, you know, get a wedding organized when they're speaking out the talk of another lockdown happening. And that kind of, again, and everything that you guys preached as muscle managers over the years about stress and whatnot, I, I never had seen that impacting my appetite but it did how often do you see that with other other guys and girls very very common it's probably normally um it's rare to see one of those phases implemented it's not rare but it's more uncommon to see one of those phases implemented just by the gradual um increase in the mismanagement of blood glucose or you know the just the diminishing um return on on appetite that's just happening lately it's always usually triggered by something and that is usually going to be going to be stress uh, and we know obviously stress and we look at that autonomic nervous system we look at the 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 vagus nerve that 10th cranial nerve that is kind of governing this flip between the parasympathetic and sympathetic states when that vagal tone decreases and when we're in this more sympathetic dominant state more stress state so to speak we know that there is a, a suppression in the secretion of these gastric acids and enzymes. There's a reduction in saliva production. Saliva obviously, you know, hosts a lot of those pancreatic enzymes that break down food. So in a high stress state, not, are, not only are we compromised in regards, to, in regards to actually breaking down and assimilating food, but we're also compromised when it comes to hunger signaling as well. Um, and nine times out of 10, high stress equates to low hunger. And that's, you know, it's probably a, a, a relatively um, innate thing in humans that when we are stressed, we, we're not thinking about food. We're thinking about dealing with the stress yeah. in the first place in that fight or flight state. Yeah. Uh, and you see that all the time. And what was, again, what sort of reaffirmed in my mind was the minute that I came, like the minute that I went on. So I, I, if, if you're listening there, I got to the point where I was physically wretching at the end of each meal, went on my honeymoon went to pretty much paradise and was fine and ate everything <laughs> and then came back and as, as I came back you dropped my food to I'd say fairly low like no on train day fairly low and after like a week I was like cow I'm fucking starving yeah. <laughs> so to, to see how much well one being in a de-stressed or you know de-stressed environment state um, as well as even a week or two on lower food literally came back like that um, that's not to say if you would speak to Rona today in my post-rocket meal it didn't take me a bit longer but at the same time it's still back so really really cool tool I just wanted you to share that for 
for the listeners out there. Maybe perhaps they're doing their own off-season um, because a lot of people get in this mi- mindset of I'm gaining or I'm cutting, I'm gaining or I'm cutting. They're not thinking about, well, maybe I still have three months left in this gaining phase, but I want to reset my appetite so I could get there. Yeah. Because let's face it, if you think that they've got another 10 pounds to put on, you're not going to be able to put that on them without pushing more food up, right? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So moving on, I think I've asked you this already. I asked you what the most common mistake was for an off-season, but I guess we touched on perhaps the the chasing load, but is there anything else when it comes to an off-season that you think perhaps you'll see people commonly do we, we, we mentioned that it's the going on social media, it's the seeing someone do a lift and I want to do that. Is there anything else that you see that you know what you think, maybe something you're not thought of that, that people do that maybe stunts their progress or their, their total development? Um, I think training-wise, in terms of like the actual stimulus, buying off more than they can chew, especially when intensity starts to increase, so just doing too much and um, changing programming too often as well. Like one thing that I've done for the last, and I feel this is the, this is a period of time over the last eight months where I've probably made the most progress I ever have done in my entire life. And I've had the least amount of variation in my programming ever. And, you know, I've run what, well, the split that we ran in lockdown and I've run this, this, this split for the last six, six or so months. And those sessions have rarely ever changed. They've probably been the same movement patterns with very similar volume depending on, and I, I ought to regulate that as well, but um, same movement patterns getting stuck into progressing those same movement patterns and not stopping and starting and changing and switching, which I've been really guilty of in the past, but it's something that um, I made a concerted effort to not do just because I wanted to, I wanted to standardize my ability to approach that phase with a, with a, some form of kind of model of progression that would just be predictable as opposed to, you know, one week I'm doing an incline barbell press, next week I'm doing a dumbbell press, next week I'm doing a machine press. Yes, it's a, it's a stimulus on the pec and it, it might be even a, a stimulus on the same fibers, but it's just very hard to, to, to standardize that progression over an entire training cycle. Um, and I've literally just picked the biggest bang for buck movements that I, I know would suit my, my structure, you know, offer good alignment, and allow me to generate as much intensity as possible and just stuck with them for as long as I could. Yeah, that's perfect. Now, for someone out there who's listening that maybe perhaps doesn't know what auto-regulating your volume means, could you just go in a little more detail um, for someone that's just kind of been confused by that state? So it's uh, it's the ability to adjust your training on a day-to-day or a week-to-week basis, more so in terms of the amount of workload you have in a session relative to how you perceive recovery and fatigue moving into that day or week. So, you know, if I've if I've had to work for two extra hours in the evening and I've not gone to bed until 11.30 p.m. and then I've woken up at, at six and I know that I woke up a bit groggy, I've gone to bed an hour and a half later than I normally do, or I'm, I might have missed that first meal, or I might have not been able to take enough fluid on board. You know, I know that those variables will hinder my ability to not only perform in that session, but also recover from it as well. And taking that feedback on board, I'd then potentially tweak what the plan was for that day based on the situation I was in for that given moment. So I might go, right, you know, that 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 safety bar squat actually had two sets, but today I'm only going to do I'm only going to do the, the higher up set, or I'm only going to do the, the top set and I'm going to leave the back off set. And then there'll be some days where I've slept perfectly and I feel great. And it's like actually 
no, I'm going to do two sets of them. I'm going to get them done. Yeah. Um, is, is, it, is it ever like, because I, I bet there is, right? I I try to pull, I try to approach everything logically, right? But I assume that there's still those moments when it doesn't matter if like, so the scenario I'm going to give you is that I got back from our honeymoon on the Monday. And on the Tuesday, I was like, I'll go in, I'll take the load down a little bit, and I'll I'll get some some sets done. However, the gym's ready to shut. So I went, fuck it, let's put a preview on. Right? Yeah. Do you still have those moments where you, you go into that session knowing, yeah, I'm not gonna not gonna do it, but then when you're there, you just go, fuck it. And you do the two sets or you do the extra reps, maybe perhaps yeah. without thinking. Like if it's um that that's that whole saying, if it's there, take it, you know. If you're warming up to that, if you go into this, the gym and you're a bit groggy, and sometimes this does happen, like, and then you you start doing those those feeder sets, you put some music on, you know, you drink a coffee or what you know, put your, you put your favorite playlist on, whatever it might be, and those those warm up sets are like bloody oh, this is moving nicely, you know it's on, and then and then take it, but it's the sessions where you're warming up and everything feels heavy and your lower back's a bit stiff or your hips a little bit locked up and you're like fucking hell, this doesn't feel good. Like that's the session where you've got to box that decision off to just just play the smart move instead of saying no i've got two sets on paper i must do two sets you know those are the situations where you'll do that second set and something will ping something will pop you know it, it's a risk that not necessarily it's not necessarily worth it when you look at calculated risk and auto regulation yeah and i think that that probably becomes more important the heavier that you become right yeah 100%. so with you being on in your off season pushing three hundred pounds, like if someone's listening to this and they haven't seen you do the likes of an RDL, you know if you're holding, I think that you're what doing like two sixty on that maybe plus. If you're going at that movement and you're you're off your mark, you know on any given day something could ping. But whereas if someone maybe perhaps is shifting sixty kilos, eighty kilos, ninety kilos, it the, the, the sort of the risk versus reward is a little bit different to to yourself yeah 100% it's uh yeah the magnitude of load that's being lifted in the level of stress that you're putting on the body although it's relative like you get someone that weighs you know 50 kilos being training for six months lifting 60 kilos like relatively it's a high challenge for them but it's not necessarily something that's gonna you know cause a you know a lot of uh a huge amount of risk but it is relative but then there's people that are advanced that are uh that uh you know taking those challenges taking those sets to a to a, a higher level then the the micromanagement of recovery is a much bigger consideration yeah i would guess that i would what i would probably say if there was one flaw within my own sort of training um it would be that if it's on paper and i got six last week fucking get seven this week doesn't matter if i'm tired yeah. and i i think that's just uh it's a stubborn thing now don't get me wrong if i actually miss the number in the set I'm like, well, it was fucking heavy, you know, and that's fine. But I'll, I don't know, I, I still have that mentality of when I go in, when you put, we've all got that one song, right? For me, it's Requiem of a Dream, like Lord of the Rings, right? When you put that on, it's like, it's fucking go time. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Maybe, you know what I mean? Um, and then it's kind of like, after that first rep, you know whether you're going to get it or not. Yeah. And sometimes, even though those warm-up sets feel like you've got a baby elephant on your back, when you do that first rep of that top set and it flies, you're like, game on. <laughs> if you want to add 20 kilos to your top set, all you need to do is drive drive seven hours to Nottingham and train Macau. 
and <laughs> and you imagine because because every time I came down, I went fuck. The last time I the last time I did that machine, it was there was forty kilos less on the bar. Yeah. <laughs> or I think there was one time I came down into a session with James, and um, even just because you were there, I'm like, well, fuck, Cal's done five plates on this, so I'm fucking doing that. <laughs> yeah, I think it was it was the pendulum. I remember that actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, now. Listen, I know we've been kind of chatting for a while, but a lot of people um, have said to me, Vaughn, if Carl's coming on, like, ask him what his future plans are. When's he going to compete? You know, when's he type of stage? What federations he want to do? Like, get him to tell you that. And I was like, I'll ask, but he's probably going to say, you know, when the time's ready. So for the listeners out there that have been bickering to me to ask you, my man, could you give them a little idea, please? It will, uh, it will be next year. Good. That's, as much, that's as much as I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I was literally to say, is it going to be what federation? Is it going to be in the UK? Now, you've always been quite open and honest and said that your aspirations are to be the best coach that you could possibly be. However, I know you had a, a goal in your mind, which was to, to win a bodybuilding competition. You've done that first show, boom, ticked off. What's the next one for you? Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the ultimate for me, and it's not so much, you know, Turning pro is something that does excite me, but it's not the be all and end all. Um, a British title would be something that I'd be I, I'd be pushing for when when that time comes. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And, and that's I guess the reason I relate to that is because I'm I'm exactly the same. I, I don't think that I think being a pro bodybuilder it's a it's a young man's game. I'm pushing thirty one, um, and uh, look at Seabum, he's twenty five or something <laughs> or, or something like that, right? Um, and I guess the last question I would have for you is just if you could kind of take the past 10 months um, of what's been going on in, in the world and whatnot and give us a synopsis of, you know, what besides the fact that you can actually be busier, what it's taught you um, and just some sort of, I don't know, home truths or lessons that someone could, could take away from this. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, Showed a, um, what's the right way to word this? It showed, I think it showed the entire industry a vulnerable side, a potential vulnerable side of what we do because things can be taken away from us very quickly. But it's also showed in an entire industry opportunities that we wouldn't have ever potentially thought about previously in terms of, you know, whether that's content being produced, whether that's how we're speaking to our audience. Um, how we're delivering value. Obviously, the the last kind of eight months to a year since it was well, since March last year, there's been a, a massive shift towards the online platform, and that's been a massive opportunity for a lot of people to drive to drive their presence online, to drive clients online, um, and potentially that was something they wanted to do for a while, but they never had the opportunity to do it, and that was the reason that they actually managed to capitalize. So it, it's been a bit bit of a wake up call for a lot of people, and I think in the industry now with you know, how competitive it can be. Um, it's it's made a lot of people level up and it's also potentially pushed a lot of other people out that weren't quite cutting it in terms of the quality and of the service that they're delivering and just how much they put it into what they were doing on a day-to-day basis. So um, I think if anything's being taught is the ability to take ownership when things aren't potentially going to plan and then making positive outcomes from whatever the situation is. Um you know, we we had a load of stuff planned for last year in terms of educational events, in terms of client shows, whatever it might be. And, you know, stuff didn't happen. And then we basically thought of, 
you know, we thought of the next thing that would be the most productive thing to do that wasn't the original plan. And then you just run with that. So um, there are, there are a lot of coaches at the start in that first lockdown that were tearing their hair out and being like, Jesus, like all my clients are leaving. And that is stressful. And it's, it's not a nice feeling at all. You have to put client payments on hold. People are texting you saying, Oh, I can't afford it anymore or this and that. Um, but you've got to take that on the chin. You've just got to run with it and you've just got to look at the opportunities to grow out of that. Yeah. 100%. I actually, that, that first month of April, I lost about, there's one month, I think 21 or 23 clients left. Um, mm. Don't get me wrong. Unfortunately, I work with a lot of people, but for some businesses, that could be completely crippling. I knew a few, I knew a few PTs that literally they, they started working in Tesco's. You know, it was, it was quite quite sad. And um, one other thing, I suppose, uh, is you could maybe perhaps let us know how much uh, you know the Muscle Matters team has grown um, the past year, and also maybe perhaps what's on the agenda for you guys, perhaps in the next twelve months, and also you know where people can kind of contact you guys, get in touch with you, sign up to the portal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, 100%. So uh, there are now six of us. So Ross, is, um, Ross has come on. So there's now me and Luke, James, Ryan, Alex and, and Ross. Um, obviously, as everyone knows, Luke and James are very much the, the kind of the figureheads within the educational side of the business. And obviously, Ross and Ryan and, and Alex uh, are now kind of... Um, thriving within that coaching environment for us as well, which is really exciting to see. So from a business perspective, there's a large focus on education for this year, especially on the online platform, given the circumstances. Um, we do have a facility in Birmingham that will be available in March. And we do have obviously James's private place as well, but due to the restrictions, it's, um, it's impossible to set a specific date in terms of when these things can run. So for now, the focus is very much just a case of um, just pushing more onto the educational portal and, and providing more value and content there. Yeah, fantastic. For anyone that doesn't follow you and they want to after listening to this podcast, you want to let them know how they can get in touch? Uh, if you just Google the Muscle Mentors, it will come up with our website and then all the social media tags are just our first name. But if you just put in the Muscle Mentors, you'll be able to find all of us. Super, man. Well, listen, thank you as always um, for a lot of knowledge bonds. I'm sure a lot of listeners will take take away. Um, I'm sure that I speak for me and yourself when I say wherever you are, whatever you do, give it a beans.